0: Hi everyone and welcome to Healthy, Wealthy and Smart 2013. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and welcome to this virtual online conference. And today I'm very excited to have on, as my guests, plural. I have I would like to welcome Drs Joseph Brentz and Francois Przezinski to this episode. Dr. Brentz has appeared on Healthy, Wealthy and Smart in the past and returns with Dr. Przezinski. To introduce the listeners to a model of motor control, which they believe will help clinicians incorporate the biopsychosocial model into everyday patient care. This model, which they have coined the MIP algorithm, is being presented October 18th, so very soon, 2013 at the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapist Conference in Cincinnati and a theoretical publication is currently under review. Both uh, Francois and Joe are also uh, involved in fellowship programs. So Joe is a fellowship in training at the Sports Medicine of Atlanta Manual Therapy Fellowship Program. And Francois is a faculty member at the Sports Medicine of Atlanta Manual Therapy Fellowship Program. So welcome to you both.
1: Hey, thanks for having us, Karen. We're excited to, to you know, be involved with this, and, and, and we're very gracious to, to you having us on as, as speakers and hosts, so yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for having much. us on. Thank my you. My
0: pleasure. My pleasure. So, let's get right down to it. So, uh, you guys have developed another model for motor control. Why is that so important, and do, in your opinion, where does this uh, fill in a gap that perhaps is missing in sort of motor control?
1: Sure. Well, well, thanks for the question, Karen. I, I think I'd like to begin by explaining that there are a lot of different models out there, um, and, and there's a lot of different models that can be applied, but as as we've discussed in the past, the the understanding of, of how we interact with our patients is changing. Um, I, I think that we're beginning to understand that it's not just about the biological tissues of the body but about psychological variables, as well as, as the, the social context in which you apply therapy. Um, I think that some of the models, and, and Francois will discuss this in a second, but some of the models in the past have done a great job at explaining how motor c- control can be applied to those biological tissues, but may have, have fell short in, in explaining the context in which to apply motor control activities. Or how psychological variables may in, influence the the, um, the the motor control activity.
2: Mm-hmm. So, Francois yes. can
1: can discuss a little bit further here. Sure. Um, you know, as a as a
2: treating clinician, um, you know, one of the things that we look at in outpatient orthopedics in the literature is a term called stabilization. Mm-hmm. And so, for a long time, as as we have learned, the the term stabilization really has its roots from a pathoanatomic definition uh, of segmental stability uh, and to measure uh, angulation and translation of two segments, uh, defining it as unstable. Uh, And it really wasn't until around 92 when Punjabi did a really good job of identifying the three subsystems that we're all familiar with uh, the passive, active, and neural components. Uh, And, you know, it really. That alone really set uh, the stage for what does it mean to have a neutral zone, an intact nervous system, uh, to be able to have good innervation of muscular tissue and it spawned a lot of literature uh, to grow, uh, particularly from Australia with Hodges and Richardson and Joel uh, to look at what does it mean to have stability uh, but it, it it goes far beyond just the definition of stability because uh when when we just look at it alone it as joe mentioned does not take into consideration psychological and social factors mm-hmm. which are parts of input that we receive apparently that will affect the output i e motor control mm-hmm. so sure. the literature itself has had some discrepancies um mo- you know recently really uh, to look at the uh agreements in judgment between uh, the- this is we're talking about the treatment based classification system for the state stabilization category and the manipulation category mm-hmm. and it was very interesting to see that the largest disagreement was between a hypo i need i e i need to manipulate mobilization mm-hmm. category and then theoretical <coughs> hyper. Which is to say that something is potentially moving too much; it's unstable, aberrant movement, mm-hmm. so forth. And so, to have that much disagreement between the two, uh, when we were originally looking at this proposal, you know, I personally started to look at that, and I, and I, I said, you know, how do you explain that? You know, and I'm a treating mm-hmm. clinician; I want to better understand what does it mean when someone is, i.e., unstable, or is it Instability, or is that mm-hmm. just a, a matter of semantics? Mm-hmm. From old term, more from a pathoanatomic definition. Right. So, you know, with Joe being in fellowship uh, training, you know, we, we started to really hash through and ask these questions. And, you know, I said, Joe, uh, I see a commonality here uh, with some of uh, Stanley Paris's work, Chad Cook, mm-hmm. Peter O'Sullivan and even Hicks at all with the famous uh, you know, identifiers, the four variables to deem who will be successful in a stability program, all have looked at this individual that we're deeming as instability or stabilization category to have mm-hmm. some element of long-term chronic pain involved in this clinical picture. And so I said, with Joe's interest as heavy as it is in pain science, Mm -hmm. I would ask Joe, well, Joe, please apply this theoretical knowledge that we have in the literature of pain science to this clinical environment of motor control. And really, this interaction that I have just highlighted is what spawned this discussion, this presentation, and this Mm -hmm. future publication. And so... um, I think it's a matter of looking at it from more of a broad sense that there are other underlying variables in this group that we hope with our algorithm will organize a clinician's thought process mm-hmm. to better be able to handle some of the other variables involved besides just angulation and translation
0: sure which which makes a lot of sense, and I think you know the word that stability or instability i think are words that are often thrown out maybe a bit too much and i agree i think looking at other factors and other components can make a huge difference cuz someone may be maybe considered you know too stable but that may be because they're guarding it may be the context in which they have their pain and they become you know, so rigid or too tight and and it can be perhaps going to a physical therapist can bring on that feeling of hypo mobility, let's say, and you know being unstable, I think there's a lot more factors that go into instability than people think, and well, so
2: I, I mean this is a good opportunity to take it a step further and uh in and- you know I was exposed to some some literature by a, it's a medical doctor by the name of Andrew Haig mm-hmm. out of Ann Arbor Michigan mm-hmm. and he received a lot of grant funding to <laughs> further analyze stenosis, lumbar stenosis mm-hmm. and it's, it's fascinating that from his work he's got eight or nine publications that have really uh, done a good job to funnel the same conclusion and that's basically He's using um, MRI to to note what is the static anatomic variation of tissue to mm-hmm. deem stenosis, mm-hmm. and then the clinical definition of stenosis. And he found a lot of individuals would have moderate to severe stenosis, but not have any clinical symptoms of radiating feature mm-hmm. or back pain. And this is not below the knee. Right. And so what he found is that the more differentiating factor was what he called segmental mapping with EMG and he found that there are greater than four and he even looked at greater than six uh, uh, polyphasic motor units that has found to have an extremely low false positive rate. Mm. And it was very accurate in determining who was clinically stenotic versus who is not. Mm-hmm. And the conclusion of why I bring this up just to, to kind of take it uh, to who is hypo and hyper. Uh, we're talking about stenotic individuals here. Okay, they're stiff, right? We all have that image in our mind of who this clinical population is. And so, what Dr. Haig his conclusion was: we shouldn't be calling clinical stenosis foraminal encroachment, he said, we, because that's the pathoanatomic definition is not accurate, mm-hmm. he said we should be calling it, quote, paraspinal denervation syndrome. Because he found that the individuals with the uh, inhibition, if you will, uh, or de-innervation, better word, Uh, of the multifidus were more accurate descriptors of who was truly clinically stenotic Mm. by having the presentation of the Mm -hmm. symptoms whenever they walk. Mm -hmm. So even in an individual that has hypomobility, stiffness, we're still looking at maybe an over-reliance on Panjabi's passive restraints, an over-reliance on bony architecture and ligamentous control versus an intact neural system for active control to maintain and take almost like a scaffold to take some of the, uh, the uh, stability requirements into consideration. There should be this delicate balance as it was yeah. originally theorized. Yeah, yeah, and so just to look at hypos and hypers, we're still looking at motor control is mm-hmm. still an element here and I think that's so fascinating of why there was a discrepancy in some of the literature that says the agreement in clinical judgment to who do we manipulate and who do we stabilize mm-hmm. maybe this can shed a little bit more light.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I was at a course with Paul Hodges and Laura Mosley, la- actually last year this very day. Um oh believe it or not, Um, and I remember Paul Hodges said something that made so much more sense to me after he said it, and that was, you know, we want to look at stability within the context of the spine. Stability is being able to have the control to move in and out of a neutral spine with control, Yeah, and that is stability. Stability does not mean bony structures are I guess in alignment, or they are on, uh, you know, evaluation, they feel good or they're springy or what have you, but that it's really being able to move through that neutral spine position with control. And that was his definition of stability. And I I heard that and I was like, yes. And
1: it it, it, it makes sense. Exactly. To add to that, we would say, you know, with that definition, we just put in your environment afterwards because it's got to make yeah. sense that individual. <clears throat> Perfect. You could practice this all day clinically, but this is does this apply to your your daily life? Um, and does this apply to meaningful movements for you?
0: Perfect. Perfect add on. So now let's get into what exactly does the acronym MIP stand for?
1: Sure. So so we think that there are three fundamental properties. Um prior to the application of motor control activities. The M in MIP stands for motivation. And that simply means, and we can get into this a little bit further, um, but simply means we think the individual must be motivated to move differently prior to performing the activity. Mm -hmm. So if if I examine you and I get you on a a treatment table and begin an intervention, are you motivated that that's actually going to result in something? Mm -hmm. If, if you're not believing in what I'm doing with you, and if you're not motivated or have an expectation that a change is going to occur,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's probably not. So so M stands for motivation.
2: And I would just add, in this uh section, we're also considering individuals who have kinesophobia, fear of movement, mm-hmm. and so forth. This would all be factored into uh what we would deem at this level, which uh, is, is really a, a an interactive level. It's a social level, we're talking, we're screening uh, and, and so,
1: yeah. And I, and I think that when, when we state this as an algorithm, we think this is the first thing that should occur in this interaction. Um, it, 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 again, if you just get the patient on the table, try to perform activities without a motivation or expectation for change, it's likely not going to be productive. Mm-hmm. Um, moving on from motivation, I as input an input is any type of afferent information you're providing to that individual's nervous system okay. and again you're preparing that individual nervous system for a change so that can be manual therapy can be taping it could be the lighting of the room getting that visual input mm-hmm. the intonation or prosody of my speech all of these different inputs are going to prepare that individual to move differently so an individual should be motivated. After after they're motivated, now let's prepare, prepare those body segments for movement.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, after after the individual's motivated, after there's input. P stands for plan, and and planning is is kind of uh, you know still a, a little bit of a gray area in our understanding. Mosley and the camp out of Australia that are doing a fantastic job with, with some of their research on laterality, mm-hmm. and some of their understanding of, of cortical centers in the brain that, that have mapping for movement. But we, we propose that individuals should be able to at least visualize or, or plan that movement prior to performing it.
2: Mm-hmm. Put it this way if I can't even imagine myself doing this, why would I do it? Yeah. If I can't imagine even throwing a ball, I'm, I sh- I'm already setting the expectation that I can't. And so I may alter the way I move mm-hmm. based on my intention and willingness. Mm-hmm. So it's a prefrontal cortex program mm-hmm. that has to be executed. And it pretty much closes the circuit for the movement mm-hmm. to take place. Mm-hmm. I almost consider the plan phase in any in any activity, and I, I could, you could look at it as the throwing athlete, uh, the ballerina with the mirrors, uh, the the martial artist, you know, trying to imagine the way that they they're punching. They're using all these mm-hmm. visual cues like squeeze and tuck, or look at the mirror and drop your shoulders and hold and stand tall, feel tall. She looks at somebody, she mimics. Okay, there's so many things involved. Uh, the throwing athlete that imagines themselves, you know, mm-hmm. first they do it slow and then build themselves up from 20, 30, 40% uh, maximal effort uh, before they try to just throw it a hundred percent. And then that's going to be uncompensated, okay? Or it should be, no, that is compensated movement mm-hmm. if they're not ready for it. Mm-hmm. You want uncompensated movement that's smooth, qualitative in nature. That is not painful. And it's free for them to explore in a safe Mm -hmm. environment that they're using their body in that nice definition that you said movement that's controlled through a functional range. It's just that for these more athletic people, the rate at which they have to do that controlled movement is much higher.
0: Of course. And so this sort of sounds to me like the sort of explicit motor learning part of graded motor imagery. Is that? kind of where this would, it sounds, you know, fairly you're, similar.
1: You're, you're exactly right. Um, and actually, it's this, this entire algorithm that we've developed has come about from from some of the research that's likely influenced Mosley's camp. Um, the the Neuromatrix, for example, by, by Ronald Meltzak. Mm-hmm. If, if you look on the right side of the Neuromatrix, we understand that you know, different inputs go up to the brain mm-hmm. and the brain can respond by sending an output of pain. A lot of your speakers are going to be talking about this, so I'm not going to get you know too in depth with that. But right below pain on Ronald Melzack's model, mm-hmm. action programming. Mm-hmm. So not only is is pain a defensive response, but we're likely moving differently as a protective response as well. So, yeah. so the altered movements and, and the inhibition of of certain musculature is likely defensive in nature. Yep. So when we're approaching these individuals, we want to have a, a, a great effect on the individual nervous system.
0: Yeah, yeah, which makes a lot of sense. And you know, that kind of you sort of answered partly the next question:
1: okay. is
0: how does the MIP model incorporate the neuroscience information that we are currently learning as clinicians? So I think that you sort of kind of touched touched and got sort of partially into that just then. Yeah,
1: you're you're exactly right, and, and it, it it's. I don't want to just say applying the neuroscience information, because that, it, it is applying that, mm-hmm. but it's implying all of this research that we're finding out about the influence of psychological factors mm-hmm. on, on outcome. And as Francois said, the term kinesiophobia. Mm-hmm. If, a, if a patient comes to me and they're afraid of moving, I need to influence them. <clears throat> Moving's actually good. Yeah. And I think yeah. that David Butler uses the term, and David Butler is going to be one of your, your he presenters is. Here. He is. He says the, the next movement is the best movement. And, and if we can influence a patient that that's true, then they're likely going to get better. Yeah. And that's that motivational aspect of, of what we talk about. Um, the input, what we're trying to do, and, and at least what I personally believe I don't want to speak for François but if, if I'm mobilizing a segment on the low back, mm-hmm. okay, I, I truly don't know what's happening. But I do know that it often results in a decrease in pain, Mm -hmm. so I do know that it's likely having some effect by sending input information to that brain, and the brain's determining something's happening here, and we don't have to be quite as protective, so we don't have to send as much pain to that region. So I think that input likely has some form of Mm -hmm. of neurophysiological effect um, on the body that could result in, in increased action programming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I could add to input
2: by stating that it's very interesting that different patients have different input needs. And I'd like to almost consider this from clinician-directed input, i.e. somatosensory, which could be a manipulation, mobilization, Mm -hmm. dry needling, kinesio tape. It could be any of those inputs that we put on the body for them to become aware of an area that may not be that familiar. Mm -hmm. So that is from the somatosensory input. But also the clinician-directed visual and auditory input is critical. The way I use my words. If I walk into the room confidently and I say, I know what this is, listen movement is going to help you not to where it hurts but just touching the symptom very lightly I only want twos and threes I don't want you to go to fives and sixes you Mm -hmm. understand that because twos and threes aren't exactly pain it's pulling stiff tight achy fatiguing oh you know what he might be right it Mm -hmm. it really isn't pain but if I walk into the room as a greenhorn and I just got out of school and I said Um, uh, the clinical, uh, prediction rule states that I'm going to manipulate your thoracic spine right now. Um, I'm going to have to have you lay on your side and it's going to be a high velocity uh, thrust technique where I'm going to be, uh, pushing you really hard. How confident do you feel in me right now? Mm -hmm. And I've had patients come to me literally telling me that. I don't know. I went to so-and-so and and they wanted to manipulate me. I just didn't feel right. When I hear those words, or if they've gone to a chiropractor and they say, you know what, he manipulated me. I I don't feel... Well, I just crossed that input off the list. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to thrust, manipulate this individual. I might look at maybe a graded mobilization, maybe a kinesio tape, something that might fit better with what their expectation is for healthy input. Mm -hmm. It's a real you know, back and forth interaction. And I, I think sometimes we lose that as mm-hmm. therapists. We're therapists, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, and I like when uh, when Joe kind of, he said, do you know what doctorus means in Latin? And I'm, you know, mm-hmm. I said, what does it mean, Joe? And he said, to teach. And how often is a doctor teaching you? Mm-hmm. You know, and I just uh, you know because well, you you go to a doctor. Excuse by me. By
1: definition, they are supposed to be a teacher. Exactly, and to touch upon that, I, I, I think it's important as as we're becoming a doctoring profession in the United States that that we don't lose sight of that and that we continuously educate our patients, um, and and we're really hoping that this algorithm will help clinicians. Put things into perspective mm-hmm. on, on how we educate our patients and how we interact with our, our patients. It's, it, as, as Mosley in that camp states, it's, it's not just about the tissues of our body. Um, we have to think about all these different influencing inputs, as Francois said, so the words that we use, yep. the lighting in the clinic. Sometimes, if you're laying on your back and you're staring up at fluorescent lights and you're centrally sensitized, you're not going to get it. It's not good. Exactly. So so taking into account all these influencing inputs and and I think accepting some sort of uncertainty there's there's different camps out there that will say manipulation is better than immobilization it's it's a rather no-brainer or or that you know kinesio tape must be applied this way because it it's going to pull the skin this way and it's going to make you better. The input likely doesn't matter. Mm-hmm, uh, there was an article out last year that compared the effects of cervical manipulation, a grade five thrust, to just putting a piece of tape on somebody's neck—the mm-hmm. results were the same. Both groups did the same, so it, it likely was simply the input that made both groups better. But one group wasn't more effective than the other because yeah. they were just that—they were just inputs right. uh, up to that brain.
0: Well, you know, I think every time you're interacting with a patient, so sort of that go speaking to your input uh, part of your algorithm is like, I always look at it as sort of a very delicate yet elegant dance that goes back and forth between you and the patient. Because when that patient comes in, a good clinician, and and most likely a more experienced clinician, not to take anything away from a new graduate, but a more experienced clinician will be able to pick up from that patient a lot more than just their physical issues. And you have to know, like, I will have patients that come, I go to see them, but that I will see where you know you just kind of, like I saw a patient last week who had, we'll just say a very stiff knee, and I just knew this is not the kind of person that a mobilization is going to work for, but rather he needed to do something more active in order to get the range back in that knee. Not to say one is better than the other, but it's gonna work better for that patient, and you sort of get that with your interaction, with how the patient reacts to what you say, exactly what you, what you guys are talking about in that input phase. And, and I think that it's, it's very important. And also, kind of what you said looking up at fluorescent lightings, I had a pay, uh, one of the speakers for this uh, conference, Alan Siegel, is a branding expert. And what he said, can, and it again goes back into your input, the moment you open the door to the clinic, he's like, as a patient, I wouldn't want to walk into a clinic and see dirty and dingy equipment. And have rude people speak to me at the front desk, and have someone come in and they're not organized and everything, all papers. He's like, all of a sudden, I'm like, get me out of here.
1: It, exactly. So, so it's all of that goes in. It's all that,
0: the expectation. Yeah.
1: The expectation, you know, it, it begins when the patient enters the enters the clinic mm-hmm. and interacts with that front desk individual. So when we talk about providing um, motivation inputs, that actually could begin with that that first handoff yeah. between the the um, the secretary and, and yourself, because that's the first interaction they're having with your clinic. Mm-hmm. So discussing you know, our fundamental properties with, with the secretary, with the aides, with whoever's bringing those patients back, so they're interacting with the patient the same way that you are. Mm-hmm. Um, extremely important that you're cohesive in that, that interaction. Yeah.
0: yeah. And Now, how does this model differ from what, current, what is currently being done?
1: Sure. Yeah, I, I think, as we've stated, I, I think that mm-hmm. it's taking into account the psychological and social factors. I, I think that a lot of clinicians look at movement and think about muscles and bones. Mm-hmm. I, I would I would hope that clinicians are, are beginning to consider the nervous system a little bit more and understand that some patients are simply afraid to that. move yeah. and, 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 again, setting that expectation, making movement less fearful for them. Um, an example I give in one of my courses, Karen, is, is a couple years ago, I was presented with a patient. She had back pain for 15 years. I, I entered the clinic and, and I was talking to her and, and she, she was very reserved and discussing her case with me. She said, I started hurting 15 years ago. So I go to examine her and, and she's laying on her stomach on one of the plinths. I walk over to, to just you know touch her low back, mobilize a little bit. And she begins crying. And, and, and I immediately stopped doing that and, and um sit her up and, and start talking to her. And she said 15 years ago, so so her back pain started 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Fifteen years ago, my husband tried to kill me. He he was kicking me in the back of the head and my back. She hurt since since <laughs> From the inception of that pain, the inception of the pain started 15 years ago. She continued to live with that and I think the reason why she continued to live with that is that the first step in our program or in our algorithm was ignored. She went to different practitioners who probably did a bunch of great exercises with her. Mm-hmm. They treated the, the the meat and bones but they didn't take into account the psychological variables that that she had faced since that that traumatic event. Mm. And, and we have a lot of, of patients who may have not went through that type of traumatic event but may have been in a car accident and they were rear-ended. And, and a lot of times we see this, this you know, form of victimization that, that occurs and, and these thoughts in their head that something may happen like that again. Mm-hmm. So I think as therapists, we need to work past some of these thoughts that our patients have. And, and, and in the car, you know, car example that I gave, get the individual in the car take a a great exposure approach Mm -hmm. to to addressing that social context and have them do their exercises in the car. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think that taking into account psychological and social variables is so important these days um, because I think they were the missing links in in what we did. And and When it feels to the clinician that it's
2: outside the scope of a graded exposure because through movement is how we're controlling Mm -hmm. our uh, our, uh, treatment, when it is beyond that. Obviously, uh, referring to course. psychology uh, and then co-treating and so forth would then occur. I don't know if we're doing uh, enough with that. Because mm-hmm. the last time I checked, I don't know of any movement psychologists that are out there. Uh, so to only talk in a room on a laying down on a couch and just talk about things mm-hmm. and to do Activities that are more uh, cognitive is not going to be enough. It's going to be in, in engaging in the environment. And when we do that, you begin stepping into the domain of physical therapy. And so, making sure that we know where one profession ends and another begins, mm-hmm. I think, is very important. How we yeah. can co treat, similar to how you would work with uh, another area uh, of mm-hmm. medicine.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, another uh, thing and everything you're saying makes so much sense and it keeps bringing things up for me. But something that uh, David Butler said, and if you take Explain Pain or I don't know if it was that or if it's when I had interviewed him before. Anyway, we were talking about, you know, when you have to take, for example, a person with the, the painful neck or what have you. And instead of asking them, okay, turn to the right, turn to the left, which some people are afraid of movement. Mm -hmm. He is just like, well, just have someone look at the back of their shoe when they stand up. So stand up and just say, could you bend your right knee and look at the back of your right shoe so that all of a sudden they're going like this and you can actually assess their range of motion because you're just taking it out of context. And right there, going to the M part of your algorithm, you just gave them a little motivation to move by saying, look at the back of your shoe versus you putting your hands here and saying, okay, turn to your right, because they're going to be like this. Turn to your left.
2: They're, they're coming. You know? from, and so uh, that's that's a well-stated well, well stated point. Yeah. I mean, that's a, It's almost a, uh, I need to let you know how much this is bothering me.
0: Yeah, yeah. And the
2: person that marks tens uh, in the last 24 hours for best, worst, and current. Mm-hmm. It's just a cry for, please pay attention to my symptoms mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And we should. Yeah. You
1: know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And okay. So we have about a minute or so left here. So sure. what, what do you want the, the viewers and the listeners here to take from this discussion? What are your key points?
1: Sure. So I, I think that we, we truly want clinicians to, to, to think about the entire human experience when they're treating a patient, um, looking at, not just the biological tissues of the body, which we do very well, but looking at some of the psychological factors which may inhibit movement, as well as the social context, like you had stated, that, that David Butler had somebody looking at the back of their shoe, just just looking at that, the way that, that the individual interacts with their environment. Our algorithm, we suspect, will help clinicians kind of work through these processes. Um, we're, we're both you know active clinicians, and, and mm-hmm. I think that sometimes when, when we read motor control literature, kinda get lost in in, in, in what's the clinical application, what, yeah. what does this truly mean to me as a clinician? And we're hoping to to take some of that research that's been done and say this is what it means. This is what we found out and and, and this is what this is the best that we know um for how you should be interacting with, with your patients. Great. I think for me it's just Putting it out there that this is the way that we've
2: conceptualized an organizational scheme to make it more clinically applicable, easier for people to learn uh, how this can help people. Uh, and by no means is it, you know, complete or perfect, or it's just a start to open up a more user-friendly format uh, to understand how to control movement in this outpatient environment and, uh, and I think that we get stuck to the literature that we read and if it's only based on certain definitions uh, are we truly looking at an applicable way to be an autonomous independent thinker to problem solve because I think any mature clinician would be able to pick up on these things and probably say that's so interesting because I do that and, and, and that's probably because you're getting the, the outcome. you know. Right. And so we want to put this out there and we want people to look at it. And we want, we want a response. And I, I think that's what it will boil down to.
0: Great. Well, I thank both of you so much for coming on to this conference. And you know, my hope is that uh, good luck in Cincinnati hey, with all of you. this. And um, if anyone has any questions or they want to learn more about you guys, where can they go?
1: They can go to forwardthinkingpt.com. Um, they also can go to sportsmedicineofatlanta.com. Um, they can simply Google my name or Francois' name, and they'll find some stuff that we put out there um, through multiple, you know, venues.
0: Great. Well, thank you both for coming on, and thank you everyone for hey, joining you. us for the conference.
1: All right.
2: Thanks. Thanks. Sure. See ya.
0: Bye. Yeah.